those activity bags, we'll, uh, we'll have them occupied for a little while, but we probably, you know, we're on a timer with that. So let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, just a few verses tonight from Romans chapter 4. We're, we're picking up with where we left off last week, where Paul, in the book of Romans, he's gone back to the story of Father Abraham. And what he's wanting to do is show us how this gospel of grace, this gospel that says that we're justified purely by faith, that it shows up all throughout the Bible, even way back in Genesis, in the story of Father Abraham. So, if you would, follow along with me um, up here on the screen. It's in your bulletin or in your own Bibles. This is Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13. God's word says this. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the appearance of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray together now. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in here would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ and in his name alone. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You may be seated. Okay, y'all, as we start out tonight, I've got a, I've got a pop quiz for you. Sorry, I didn't warn you in advance, but you know, that's the nature of a pop quiz. It's supposed to sneak up on you. And this pop quiz is, it's going to be multiple choice, so don't, don't shout out the answer until you hear all the options. There are going to be four of them. Option A, B, C, and D. So here's the question. Why did God love Abraham? Why did God enter into a covenant relationship with Abraham? Here are your options. A, God loved Abraham because Abraham obeyed him. When he said to leave his homeland, to leave his kinsmen, and to follow the Lord out to where God would show him. That's option A. Or option B. God loved Abraham because Abraham was brave and courageous and he consistently fought for the weak and the oppressed in the area where he lived to protect and defend them. Number, or not number B. Uh, letter B. Option B. Or C. God loved Abraham because Abraham believed and trusted him. Finally, D. God loved Abraham because Abraham was willing to offer him everything, even his very own son. So what do you think? Why did God love Abraham? A, B, C, D? I probably should have put this up on the screen. I hear a lot of C's, I'm seeing C's, I love it. Oh, that is the right answer. Whew, I was worried, guys. I, I thought that if you got that wrong, I'd just have to resign on the spot tonight. But really, it is, yes, the answer is C. Even though there are those other things listed there that are amazing stories in the life of Abraham about how he showed such courage that he was willing to obey God even when it was costly for him. Those things are not the reason why God loved him. Those things are not why God entered into relationship with him. The reason we are told time and time and time again in the Bible 
of why God loved Abraham is the same reason that God loves you and I. By faith. Because he trusted and believed God, therefore he was justified in his sight. One of the things that we spoke about last week, it's almost like Abraham, who lived a long, long time ago, before the days of Jesus, he was looking forward in faith to the cross. And here we are, past the time of Jesus, looking back in faith to the cross. And yet both of us are looking at the same thing, the righteousness of Jesus, to justify us. And we take hold of it by faith, by believing God and trusting him. Abraham's life, well, it's strikingly similar to ours when you get down to his relationship with God. Now, to get into the text for today, though, I want to I kind of shake up that question a little bit and hypothetically think of something. Uh, hypothetically, let's pretend that the answer to that question I gave you was different. Let's pretend that the reason God loved Abraham was because of option A. Because Abraham obeyed him when he said, leave your country and follow me. Or, just as easily, we could say, the reason God loved Abraham was because of option D. Because he was willing to sacrifice his son to hold nothing back to God. If that was the answer to the question, if those were the reasons why God loved Abraham, what then would that change about our understanding of how we relate to God? Or how anybody relates to God for that matter. How would that affect the way we thought about covenant? Well, I'm glad nobody's blurted out an answer. Because the reality is that's kind of a trick question. There is no real answer to that question. Because it's an impossibility. There is no way that anyone can be in covenant relationship with God outside of a life of faith. So the idea that the answer to the question could have been different, that Abraham was loved by God because of his law-keeping or works, it's an impossibility. It doesn't fit. It can't fit. And the way that our text expressed that tonight was by using two words, null and void. Putting law-keeping into this equation of knowing God and relating to him makes it null and void. The, the verse that I'm drawing that from is verse 14. It said, for if the adherents of the law are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Now, I was thinking this week about um, math equations. If any of you guys are uh, savvy with mathematics, you're probably going to tell me that I'm talking about this all wrong, but here goes. I had in my mind this week as I studied this passage, this really long equation, like a hypothetical equation that has lots of numbers, lots of variables, lots of exponents, you know, the little, the little tiny number at the top that makes things really complicated, some square roots in there. Uh, some division, long division even, you know, all the scary stuff you don't like. And so 
the more numbers we put in that equation, the more variables, the more complicated it gets. And we can add more and more numbers, multiply by big numbers, by small numbers, and everything that we do will make it more complex and make that solution look different. It would either go higher or lower, it would be a bigger number, a smaller number, on and on and on. And yet, there is one number that we could multiply by that takes all that complicated equation and makes it incredibly simple. Makes no matter what the numbers are on this side, it will always be the same on the other side of the equal sign. What is that number? Zero. That's right. If you multiply anything by zero, the answer is zero. It could be one number, seven times zero equals zero, or it could be a huge, long equation with exponents and square roots and division and multiplication, all the different operations, and yet if we multiply it by zero, it will always be the same on the other side, zero. The reason I was thinking of that is because it felt to me that introducing law keeping into this equation of how we relate to God is like putting a zero into the equation. It makes it zero. It makes it empty. It makes it null. It makes it void. And it takes something that we, we maybe say, well, it would, it would shake it up. It would make it different. It would give us a new idea or a new perspective on a relationship with God. And it's like, no, it doesn't. It actually just totally cancels it out. It makes it null and void. Why it is that law keeping has such a nullifying effect on the promise of faith, of relationship with God? Well, it, it has to do with the nature of the law itself. One of the things that I'm not sure I've done the greatest job of as we've been going through Romans is that I don't think I've ever really said very clearly the nature of the law by itself. We, we've beat up on the law a lot as we've gone through Romans, and yet it's important to remember that if you look at the law of God just in and of itself, it's a good thing. The law of God is good. The New Testament straight up tells us that multiple times in the Old Testament too. Because the law of God in itself, it is the way that we as human beings can live according to the way that God made us and his purposes. And when we live like God made us, that's abundant life. That's freedom. That's joy. That's living in the way we were, being, we were designed to live. And not only that, the law is, we are told in God's word, a reflection of his character. So the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the ordinances in the Old Testament scripture, they reflect what God cares about, who he is, his nature, and it's good. So the problem is not with the law itself. The law is good. The problem is when we try to use the law in a way it was never intended to be used for. When we try to use the law as the basis by which we'll enter into relationship with God. And we begin to think that if I keep the law well, that will make God love me. I'll earn his favor. I'll be worthy of his love. The law was not designed to do that. That's not its intention. And therefore, when we use it in that way, it blows up in our face. And if we begin to see how it's like that zero factor in the equation, making everything null and void. 
the, the text that we read today, it says it very, well, very starkly and directly. Verse 15 of the text started like this. For the law brings wrath. Wow. Very direct. No beating around the bush there. For the law brings wrath. And what this is saying, remember, the law in and of itself is good, but when we begin to use it as the basis of our relationship with God, the law actually opens us up to God's judgment and his justice and his wrath. We can't keep the law of God perfectly. We delude ourselves into thinking that we can, usually by comparing ourselves to other people that we think that we're better than. And we say, Compared to this person, compared to that person, I follow the law of God really well. Therefore, God, judge me based on that because I'm feeling pretty good about myself. But none of us, even those that delude ourselves into thinking that we are good law keepers, none of us can perfectly obey the law of God. And so when we decide that we are going to take that and use it as the thing that makes us right before God, We've just created a standard that we cannot live up to and that God will have no recourse but to judge us based on that standard and we fail it. And because he is just, because he is perfectly holy and just, all that's left is for his wrath and judgment to be poured out on those who don't keep his law. Why it is that this law makes the covenant promises null and void is because when we use it to be our justification, it can't help but bring wrath instead of life. That verse, though, that stark verse goes on, and it says this, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. It's kind of an odd phrase, so let me try to unpack it. One of the things that the law does is that it has the tendency to be able to awaken sin within our hearts, as strange as that might sound. It actually has the capacity to give definition to sin and evil that maybe we didn't have language for, but when the law comes on the scene, now we do. So think for a second, if you, there's a family way back in the days before the Ten Commandments came on the scene, and they have... Uh, teenagers in their family and these teenagers do what teenagers usually do they talk back to mom and dad they're disrespectful they roll their eyes you know all the classic teenager passive aggressive things you know Alan Marion you had a teenager once well sorry don't want to throw your daughter under the bus well imagine that that happens and then years later God gives us the Ten Commandments. And the Fifth Commandment says what? Honor your father and mother. And now all of a sudden, this, this disrespect that was in this household, everybody had this vague sense that something was wrong or something was off about that. But now that we have God's command, we actually have language for this. We actually have the ability to give expression to what's going wrong here. And there's this vague sense that all of a sudden begins to take form. And, and we know how it's wrong. And we know how it's disobedient to what God has said. Now, let's add to that another factor here. 
Let's pretend that there's another family that lives down the street to the one that we just talked about. And they have a teenager that never says anything disrespectful to mom and dad. They never roll their eyes. They never talk back. They always are obedient and honoring to mom and dad. But now they hear the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. And what happens? They begin to get ideas of how to be disrespectful and how to be dishonoring. Simply hearing, don't do this, or you should do this, is enough to actually give rise to sin that's being lying dormant in our hearts. And the law, even though it is good and it is a reflection of God's character, it's able to, in a sense, awaken things that are lying dormant. I think Paul tells us this in the scripture because he's trying to make you see that if you hitch your wagons to law keeping, to being a good moral person, to being a person obedient as best as you can, if you hitch your wagons to that as the reason why God loves you, it's going to blow up in your face. That's not what the law was intended for. And when we make that the basis of our righteousness, all it can do is open us up to the wrath of God and deepen our sense of guilt. That's it. And all the promises that are given to Abraham, beautiful, wonderful promises that we get to inherit because we, like Abraham, share in his faith, all those promises become null and void when we decide that law-keeping is the way that we get to heaven. Law wasn't intended for that. Faith is what God gives us to enter into covenant relationship with him. Now I know it feels like the room is getting wiggly and restless, so I'm going to bring this home here. Just give me two more minutes of your attention, okay? This text is abstract in some ways, and it's technical. It's a lot of talk about the law, a lot of talk about very sort of minute aspects of religion that sometimes could probably make us think that it's irrelevant to us. But at bottom, here's what this passage is saying. It's telling you that you have a choice in your life that has eternal consequences. And that what is laid out before you is a choice to either pursue God by keeping the law, by good, being a good, religious, moral person, or to pursue God through faith, through trust and belief and relying on Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And those two choices aren't neutral between I'll choose A or B and it doesn't really matter. Each one gets there. No. One choice, the choice of law keeping, it leads to wrath. It leads to eternal separation from God. It leads to hell. And the other choice, faith, belief in God and his promises, reliance on Jesus Christ alone that leads to life. It leads to, in the words of our text tonight, being an heir of the world along with Abraham. It leads to eternal joy in the presence of God. 
that's what's held out to you with the life of faith. And sometimes I feel like we sleepwalk through life, and many in our culture sleepwalk through life thinking that how we live has no bearing on anything beyond this life when the reality is eternity awaits us. And how we live, how we decide to pursue God matters. I told the folks up in paradise this morning that there was part of me that, that hesitated ending like this because I didn't want to scare our kids that are in here. I don't know, chances are there's not many that are paying attention right now. But then I caught myself and I was like, our kids need to hear this. Our kids need to know that this is not all there is, that there is eternity ahead of us. And that Jesus Christ is calling to his people and saying, don't rely on yourself. Don't rely on your goodness. Rely on me. Because I am the only way to the inheritance and the promise spoken about in the Bible. And that might seem offensive or exclusionary, but it's true. The path of law keeping, whatever that looks like for you, has only one destination, and it's not good. And I beseech you, parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, whatever you are in here, impress upon your kids that this isn't all there is. Eternity awaits us. It matters how we live today. By God's grace, we will live by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us and allow us to see clearly in the midst of all the distraction, in the midst of all the busyness, in the midst of all that this world throws at us, allow us to see that this is not all there is. Eternity awaits us, Lord. Please, God, let us follow you with faith and let our boast be in Jesus alone, beating our breasts like that man you talk about in the parable and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You're all I have. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.